0: I just want you to listen and know this. I have to be out here screaming Black Lives Matter, because I'm in a fight for my life every day. The statistics are not for me. The school system is not for me. The history books aren't for me.
1: No racist. No No justice. No peace. Now is the time for action now is the time for change we must work together to plot plan organize and strategize real change
2: the voices you just heard were from deandre phillips the president of the black student association at pittsburgh state university and Ditra rose director of student diversity programs at pitt state they both were powerful speakers at this week's Peaceful rally in downtown Pittsburgh in support of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, that has really taken hold all around the world, um, and obviously has come about in response to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and many other unarmed Black people across the country.
3: Brett and I both had the opportunity to be at the rally on uh, on Monday, and along with uh, a number of Pittsburgh State University faculty and administrators, and it was a great turnout. Uh, It was such a peaceful show of unity for this community. Uh, The march and the the range of of faces and ages that were there was really heartening, I think. Um, And my sense is is that it really opened this entire thing, uh, starting with the watching uh, a man, a human being be strangled to death uh, in nine minutes, over nine minutes, I think has really catapulted this country, what we hope is into a new phase uh, toward
2: change. Today on Around the Block, we're going to talk to DeAndre and Ditra and have them expand on their comments that they shared at the rally, and also just have a real conversation with us about what it means to be Black in America, uh, what they think of the protests going on around the world, and and where do we go from here? It does feel like this is a moment of real change, uh, the start of real change. And I think it's important to continue the conversation and see where we can go and how do we get better and what role do we all play in making sure that all humans are, are treated the same and with the equality and the privileges and the opportunities that
3: everyone has the right to. I, I think and hope that Uh, you all will join Brett and myself uh, in our hope that the words of the Declaration of Independence will finally mean what uh, they should mean uh, and that um, uh, the theme for our episode today is a change is going to come and uh, that seems even more necessary and more powerful and maybe hopefully we all have more hope that that could be than even when Sam Cook sang that over half a century ago. So, as always, I'm Sean Nacarado, Chief Strategy Officer at Pittsburgh State University. And I'm Brett Dalton, Social Media Director at Pitt State. Um, today's conversation is a little bit longer than many of our conversations and our episodes, but this is just such an important topic that we didn't want to cut the the dialogue short. in fact, uh, frankly, we we could have gone longer and and, and I almost wish we, we had, uh, but uh, what we hope our listeners will will appreciate is that we tried to give as much time as possible to this and have a real, uh, raw and direct conversation about what is one of the most pressing issues of our time and and in our history as a nation. And so now let's go around the block with DeAndre and Dietra.
2: Okay, hello friends, thank you for being here. We really appreciate your time and, and we really look forward to this conversation. And I think what we wanna do is start with a pretty straightforward question. And DeAndre, you can go first. What does it mean to you to be black in America?
0: Um, so what it means to be black in America to me, well, my experiences are differently than a lot of different African Americans. We're a very diverse culture that many people don't think about. There's many different shades of black and we all come from different neighborhoods and things like that. But honestly, I just want the same opportunity as any other race. I mean, I don't think that's asking for too much at all. Um, I just want my community and my people to not have to you know, grow up in these uh, impoverished neighborhoods. And because we grew up in those neighborhoods, we're forced to only go to certain uh, high schools. And most of us don't even um, think beyond just high school. So uh, it's a a low percentage. I can't give you the exact amount, but a low percentage of us actually go on to colleges. So it's like, I just want us to be able to grow up uh, within that American dream of just having a nice life and providing for our future generations. And like I said earlier, I don't think that's asking for too much.
2: Dietra, what do you, what would you say to that?
1: Well, I agree with DeAndre. Um, I think our perspectives are going to be different because I'm a lot older than him. Um, And so for me, I think what it means to be black in America, number one, true. It means to have all the opportunities that definitely should be afforded to me and to my family. Um, I'm a wife and I'm a mother of three children. And I think now at my age, I wanna make sure that I have set up generational wealth for my children and not generational curses. And what that means is her, my husband and I are both college graduates. um, And now our first daughter is a college graduate. My second daughter is a high school graduate and just started the nursing program. And then I also have a seventh grader. And so what we have done is we have established some things that will help them as they move forward into their young lives and then into their adult lives. And so for me, being Black in America means breaking generational curses. And what generational curses mean is a life of poverty, a life of living off of a government system, a life of giving my children the opportunity to to travel abroad. Our oldest daughter's already had the opportunity to, tra- well, my entire family has traveled abroad, but my daughter has did a, a college study abroad program. And then this past spring, she would have also went to Europe with our choir, but that was canceled because of COVID-19. But before that, she had the opportunity to travel to Costa Rica um, with, the Spani- with the Spanish program. And so I'm trying to do things for my daughter that Anything that you all would want to do with your children is to make sure they have access, to make sure they have opportunities for growth and development so that they will then be able to pass that on to their children.
3: So and that's something I, you know, yesterday, uh, Deitra, your speech, which um, uh, was very impactful. Uh, and there's a few specific things we might want to unpack here, actually. But one thing is, as you pointed out, you said you want the same thing for your kids as we want for our kids is white people in this country. I'd love to hear the two of you talk a little bit about what the experience, because I think we all live in bubbles. And and truth is, is that most of us are in the most of us as white people are in more comfortable bubble than any black person. And we don't know that necessarily. Um, So what do you say to someone who says, well, as long as you work hard in this country, as long as, as you are are bright and you do your best, there's, there's a way. What do you say to that, DeAndre?
0: Yeah, if I can initiate that conversation. Well, I got two points I wanted to bring up. The first point would be, um, a lot of people have been, you know, asking me on in interviews, you know, it's 2020, don't you think that, you know, this race issue would have been, you know, over by now? But my, my favorite answer is, you got to look at the overall timeline. You know, from sixteen nineteen all the way up until now. You know, the, uh, we've been in sight for 300 years, and then, I have, you know, my grandparents actually lived through the segregation era, and my great-great-great-grandma was a part of that slavery era. So it's just, we can't just get comfortable just because, and I don't know what the exact reason is for being comfortable. Maybe it's because we had our first black family in the um, presidency, but whatever it is, we can't just get comfortable in thinking that racism is just eradicated. It has only evolved just as much as human nature has. And to my second point, um, within the past year, or we can even say past month, um, we've had many different CEOs of different corporations and businesses um, uh, get removed because they've made uh, racial comments that, you know, the newer generation is speaking up and speaking out against. So I just want you to think about, well, prior to them being removed, they were still deemed as racist, but nobody knew. So, you know, people will say, all you need to do is work hard and, you know, get a good job and et cetera. But you still have these people in these high CEO positions that are hidden racist and they're putting blockades in the way. uh, Ms. Dietrich said in her speech that won't allow us to get in those rooms and advocate for ourselves. So, you know, it's very for us to get in those rooms. We have to be the top one percent of our community. And that's very difficult because you're only allowing one percent of the african-american community to get up there what about the 99 percent that might not be the brightest and the best
3: so yeah nature yeah. do you have some more thoughts on that
1: i i again you know my my perspective i i agree with everything deandre is saying um i will tell you that my husband and i have been very strategic about the moves that we have made as parents of african-american children Um, One of those is when our children were younger, we put them in private school into a Lutheran school here in Independence where I live. The reason I did that is because I wanted them to make sure that they had every opportunity that other students had. I talked about it yesterday, dismantling the public um, school system because a lot of times um, public school for African-Americans, students are treated differently. Students are labeled. um, Students are not given the opportunities that our white students are given. And so we purposefully um, saved our money and were able to afford to send our kids to Lutheran school. And I will give you an example. When I applied for a job, um, we were very active in the Lutheran school. I was actually actually at one time the president of the Lutheran PTA. And when I walked in for a job interview, um, the gentleman interviewing me said, oh, I expected you to be white. I don't know very many black Lutherans. And I said, oh, I said, well, actually I'm not Lutheran. I'm Southern Baptist, but you don't have to be Lutheran to send your kids to Lutheran school, just like you don't be, ha- have to be Catholic to send your kids to Catholic school, as long as you can afford the tuition. We had a good laugh and later I was offered the job, but I did that because I wanted to make sure I set them up for success um, there are some tenants in the school, in the Lutheran school system, where they take, teach children how to recite things. And I think I owe a lot of that to them, For especially my oldest daughter, Cortland, who is very articulate, just like myself, because at six years old, she was able to stand in front of a crowd at a Lutheran church and recite scriptures, recite poems with poise and ease because of the background that she had been given Every African-American is not gonna have that opportunity to give that to their children, but that is something that definitely set us apart um, because of the structured education that they have been given. So that is an example.
2: Yeah, and and I think something that DeAndre said is pretty important and I think it goes along with what Dietrich you just said was, and look, I, I think Sean and I would both admit, I think sometimes because we live in our bubbles there can be this sense that it is 2020 and surely surely black people aren't treated as poorly or have the disadvantages that they had 50 years ago or uh, and so i think in a way maybe it's because i try to i want to be idealistic you know going through this life i think well surely they have the same opportunities but that's why we wanted to talk to you a little bit was to get the real feeling of i think the sense we get is that you guys are saying that you're still starting from a disadvantage point if it's still like black people still have a steeper hill to climb. And why is that? Why do you think that's still the case?
0: Well,
2: do, well, yeah.
0: <laughs> well in regards to uh, Miss Dietrich's point, it, it's this thing called generational curses. Um, my family, for instance, um, my grandmother didn't finish middle school and my mother didn't finish high school. So my mother raised uh, seven children, six boys, one girl. And they were all from Chicago, Illinois, whereas my mom moved to Kansas just so that way I could be put in a better place. So like Ms. Dietrich says, she you know, she knew she was st- strategic about how she wanted to raise her kids. And my mom had the same mentality of, I understand Chicago, that's where we grew up, but we need to be strategic on how we're going to raise this last one. Because um, you know, there's no secrets about what goes on in Chicago. But to my point... Um, <laughs> I just kind of forgot what I was going to say. (laughs) It's okay. okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Now I remember. But to my point, though, like, because of the education that my grandmother has and my mother has, it was so much pressure put on me to be that person who is that generational curse breaker. I could have very much followed the uh, trend because my siblings, um, well, I'm not going to get too much into it, but I was one of the few that actually graduated high school on time. So it's like I had to step up and being the youngest, I think it put me at an advantage because I got to look at their stories and interpret them and understand that I have two routes to go probably more than two, but I'm going to just choose two routes. I can either follow them or I can create my own lane and uh, in creating your own lane, it's scary because number one, you don't have anyone who you can look up to in your family. You don't have anyone who you can get that direct mentorship from like Hey, where do I go to talk to this person or how do I fill out the FAFSA or how do I do this? So in order for me to create my own lane, I had to find mentors elsewhere outside of just my family. And a lot of kids today, they don't know how to ask for help. And I think that's what really set me apart was I I took down my humility. I swallowed my pride and I I decided to just reach out and talk to someone and tell them like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. This is my goal. This is my dream. Can you help me get there? And help comes in all different forms. It's not just financial. The best help that you can get is just word of it, advice and direction.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I would agree. I mean, I would agree. I mean, our, our lives are completely different, DeAndre, but I would agree with you that um, I think oh. that we are still tr- struggling in 2020 because honestly, People hate us because we're black. And I know that that's a strong statement to make, but if you don't know me and you just see the color of my skin and that automatically turns you off, then that's terrible. And that's very sad. Um, And that's what we deal with. Um, There are places that, you know, I said this in my speech yesterday. Um, There are places that I would dare not go um, even after dark because I would be scared to go to those places. Um, it, 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 it's, it's just the reality. I can't give you the answer, Brett or Sean, as to why it's that way, but you would ask, have to ask the people who genuinely hate us why they hate us. You know, they love our music. They love wearing our clothes. Um, white people in Pittsburgh play their music way louder than I do driving down um, the road. And, and I don't want to make a generalization. I'll say some white people, sure. not all. But there are things about us that they do not like for no reason at all. In the Office of Student Diversity, white students walk by all the time. One time two white boys walked by and they said, why do we need an Office of Student Diversity? Why is that even a thing on this campus? And I said, well, do you have a few minutes? I'd love to educate you as to why, this office is very important and an integral part of this university system. And they're like, well, maybe another day. But we need that because of students like DeAndre who are first generation and they have no clue as to how to access services, how to fill out a FAFSA. What do I do if I don't like my roommate? Um, What do I do if I don't have enough money? You know, the four of us that are on this call, and I would even include DeAndre in this as a member of ROTC, someone who's been a a resident assistant on our campus, that we are a tad bit privileged. Do you know that we have students that don't even understand how the housing and the meal plan work on our campus? Do you know that we have students that went four or five weeks into the semester, never once went to Gibson Dining Hall because their um, university housing bill was not paid? So they thought it had to be paid in full before they could ever swipe their card to eat a meal. And I'd ask them, well, what have you been eating? We went to the store and we got peanut butter and jelly. We got ramen noodles. Well, why did you not think you could eat in the dining hall? Well, Miss Dietra, my bill isn't paid. I can't eat in there because I, I owe the university money. No, it doesn't work that way. You're on a payment plan. You have every privilege that any other student has here. But if no one teaches them those things, they don't know. Sure. And so that's where we're at in 2020. It is an access issue. Yes, we are an open door institution um, where students have the opportunity to come to our university just like other um, public institutions, but there is such a gap in what students just don't know. And, and, and they're very frightened by that. They don't know how to approach instructors, that use microaggressions, that use racial comments in class, they have no idea how to navigate the system for fear of retaliation of what might happen to them. So that's where we're at in 2020. And that's why students are very apprehensive. That's why people in general are apprehensive. And to
0: so, the, effect, uh, fact, sorry. That's okay, go ahead. If I, if I can add on that. Um, and I would say one of the solutions to that issue would be, you know, to... I hate to say it, but just overstate it and, you know, put it in plain sight, but, you know, go beyond just, you know, putting it on papers and putting it on flyers. You have to actually reach out to these students as much as possible, as many times as possible and let them know that you are there for them. Um, Students just don't know um, whether it's because they're distracted because of coursework or because they just grew up not having that support system. I know me for one. Throughout my three years in college, my hardest lesson was learning how to um, still ask for help. You know, I only asked that one question and bam, I got to Pitt State. But growing up, I still didn't have that support system. I wasn't used to reporting into someone and having someone, you know, check up on me and also hold me accountable. So it's like when students have that direct person who really genuinely cares about them and it's not just a job that they're assigned to do, but it's that they personally actually care about the students. They feel that, and it changes their life indefinitely.
3: So, I, you know, I was going to ask a question here about an intersection with socioeconomic standing. Um, I don't know, have, have, have either of you ever read the book, Hillbilly Elegy, the J.D. Vance book from a couple of years ago? I have not. Uh, well, so so it was really sort of trying to, in, in some ways, explain how did, 2016 election happened how did how did poor white people vote and the way they voted against their interests and these sorts of things went, but one of the big focus areas in that is and I think this is something Brett and I both coming from rural rural me from rural from rural Missouri him from rural Kansas and it was in very po- poor areas I would say that there could you see is it possible that some of these structural disadvantages are there for poor people, period, regardless of their race.
1: Do you know what's interesting to me about your question, um, Sean, is that poor people sometimes are some of the racist people. And again, I know, and I don't want to make that as a generalization, but what I mean by that is this. They vote for something that's against them and they don't even realize that. And that's a sad state of affairs, They vote against healthcare that could help them. Um, They vote against education policies that could help them. And they don't even realize it. Again, going back to this word that I use of generational curse. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you an analogy of a young mom who just be, or a young girl who just became a wife who always emulated her mother and stood in the kitchen and watched her mother cook. Her mother would cook a pot roast on Sunday dinner And every time she'd cook this roast, she'd cut off both ends of the roast and put it in the pot to cook it. The young girl saw this growing up her whole life. She then becomes married and she has a husband. She gets a pot roast for Sunday dinner. She cuts off both ends, puts it in the pot. The husband says, well, why do you cut off the ends of the roast? Because my mom did it. Well, why did your mom do it? I don't know, but my mom did it. She calls her mom. She never asked this question before because she just saw her mom do it. So she thought that's how you cook a roast. She calls her mother and says, my husband wants to know, why do we cut off the ends of the roast before we put it in the oven to bake? You know what the answer is? My pot wasn't big enough. So I had to cut the ends off so it would fit in the pot that we owned so I could cook the roast. The same thing with people, Sean. We emulate our parents. We emulate our grandparents. So what we have seen them do, and we think that works, we continue to do it right, wrong, or indifferent. I talk to people all the time. I talked to a young girl, she has three children. She was a bright star. She got her associate's degree. I pushed for her to come to Pittsburgh State University. She kept having children. Now she has three. Why are you having children? The more kids I have, the bigger my public assistance is. That's a generational curse. My mother had a bunch of kids and got a big check in the mail, so I'm going to do it, too. I couldn't get her to come to pit. Here's the thing with that. Here's what I explained to her. Do you understand that every time you have a child, the few dollar increase in, in the government assistance you get does not nearly cover the expense of a child? Sean, you have children, right?
3: Yes, too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, let, we don't even have to talk about what it costs to put them in diapers, right? Yeah. And then as they get older, let's not talk about all the extracurriculars. And yeah. so those are generational curses that someone has to sit down and actually break down to people and help them understand. You are not helping yourself. You are doing yourself a disservice. And one day you're going to wake up and be 40 years old and look back and say, I wish I would have listened. That's what we're dealing with. We emulate what we see. And that's what we know. That's what we're comfortable with. And to step out of that comfort zone, like DeAndre being first generation, means I don't know anything about how this is going to work, but I just hope that there's somebody there to help me navigate the system. And I hope in four years, five years, I get to walk out with a degree. But so many people are very scared to be risk takers and take that first step.
3: And that the generational curse in that regard could, I mean could be uh, regardless of race that just oh, know,
1: absolutely. that's absolutely.
3: something we see all over in, our, in in poor areas of the country. Um, so I, I think that's where that intersection to me, it's, it's so, so, so it seems to me that one level we're analyzing, uh, what does it mean to be black in America and what impediments does the color of your skin on its own have regardless of your socioeconomic standing. But then you add socioeconomic standing on that, which is a higher proportion of black Americans who are low, socioeconomic Mm -hmm. but in an area like where we live we have a lot of white poor people who have curses too uh and and so the institution seems to institutionalizing racism and also um uh, Uh, impediments to other people breaking in regardless of the color of skin sometimes so that's right
0: after that and sean i don't mean to generalize um I i don't mean to cut you off real quick, but That's I understand the reason why many people want to generalize this type of topic, you know, because I grew up, I'm from Topeka, Kansas, you know, Topeka uh, Brown versus Board happened there. And, you know, race is always something that we think about. And my best friend is actually, uh, like you said, a uh, poor white person. We were all poor in Highland Park High School. So we didn't really grow up um, having, you know, racial issues happen because Altogether, we thought we were all poor. But to my point is that many people say, you know, well, we're all poor, we all have the same issues, but you got to understand, I'm poor and I'm Black. And many people want to take out race. They want to say race isn't an issue, but race is important. Race has a lot to do with how America was built. And and for people to just say, I don't see race or to try to remove it out the conversation, I think that you're only you know, increasing your blind spots and you're, you're going further away from reality because you have to acknowledge race. You just have to. Um,
2: So I want to switch gears a little and and talk about the recent protests around the country, but in particular, you know, one of the things my wife and I recently talked about um, is, and I'm, I hope I'm saying this right, but as a, as a white person, I don't think we often see things that happen to white people as that's happening to us and to my people, right? So like, I don't think white people have that thing because maybe there's the majority issue or whatever. Because one of the questions that came up was like, it's interesting, you know, you see these unarmed, innocent black people across the country being killed. And then you see the, the response from the black community and of course other communities as well. So I just wanted to ask, why does that affect the the whole community as a whole? When you see George Floyd or many of the others being killed, why does that affect you personally? And Kind of help explain why you feel so strongly about these issues.
1: I would say for me, um, as an African-American, you know, the foundation of the African-Americans is family. And When one person makes it, Brett, we all make it. When one person doesn't make it, we all don't make it. And so the success I have, other people say, if Dietrich could do it, then I can do it too. So we own that. We own that. Um, When we see a Black person, for example, the first Black mayor um, in Ferguson, Missouri, just got elected. My chest swells with pride because we're all in this together and we want each other to be successful. And so that's why it hurts us when bad things happen. Because when we look at George Floyd, we see my husband. I see my brother. I see my nephews. When I see Sandra Bland, I see my daughter, I see myself. And so we own that, you know, w- the African-American community is, is truly built on the family stands together through thick and thin. If somebody doesn't have it, we pull together. If, if, if you're sending somebody to college, what's happening right now, like with COVID-19 in um, the black church, Every student that's a high school senior, the black churches are making sure they have enough to get through that first year of college. We own that. That's our responsibility to give back and to make sure that other kids have an opportunity to do the things that we want them to be able to be successful doing. And so that's why we, we take that so seriously because they're us, you know, we see ourselves in those people Mm -hmm. and When they fail, we fail. When they rise, we rise. So that's why for me, it's so important.
2: Yeah. I think that's interesting. And DeAndre, I definitely want your thoughts on this, but I think, I think that's what it kind of hit me maybe more, maybe for the first time I thought about it in this way that I think that's something that, that white people don't necessarily have. And I think, and I mean that in a negative way, I kind of wish we did in a sense. I don't, I don't know if we often have that sense of, community with each other. So I wonder if that sometimes leads us to not feeling community with other groups as well. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like we're slightly more individualistic in many ways. And if we weren't, if we were a little bit more family and community-based, especially when it comes to the human race overall, some of these issues may not be as as adamant and prevalent today.
1: I'll give you an example before DeAndre goes. As African-Americans, if I see another African-American anywhere, I speak to them. Oh yeah. Hey, how you doing? My kids used to say, do you know that person? No, they're black. We owe them that. We speak to each other. We treat each other with civility. Not that we wouldn't treat, talk to white people too, but I greet everyone. But I make sure that I let you know, hey, I'm standing with you. If I see somebody in line in the store who's elderly than me, hey, you go ahead of me. Come on. Right. So we do have that sense of community. We do, we we owe that to each other, you know? And we, that is something that, that we are just really found that, that we're, that foundation for us means a lot. I'm sorry, DeAndre, I didn't mean to cut no, you off. No,
0: no, you didn't cut me off. And actually that's a great point you brought up. Um, I kind of think it's funny actually. And I'm not sure if, you know, I'm not trying to generalize, but I'm not sure if white people do this as well. But, you know, I've been in many, you know, uh, banquets and things like that. I've been speaker for things. It's like, you know, I, I hate to say it, but when I walk in a room, the first thing my mind looks for is where's the other black person at? Like, I'm hoping that I see someone who looks like me, because when you're in a room and you're different, you're automatically uncomfortable because you don't know your audience. They don't know who you are. They don't have any type of sense of your, your background. So it's like when you see somebody, you can relate to them, even if it is just skin color. Um, Me and Ms. Dietrich are different from our backgrounds, but because we have the same skin color, we relate on just that, and it makes us feel just a little bit comfortable knowing that we're both in the room. And um, to your uh, other point of, you know, why don't, you know, white people do that, and I, I wouldn't say, you know, all white people think that they are individualized and all black people are just family oriented, but we are all... When it comes to the Black community, we are all fighting for something. And we always have something to prove. We have to prove that our race is important as well as the other races. And that's the main, I guess you could say, hidden uh, mission or hidden goal, creed, whatever, that unites us whenever uh, something happens to just one of us. Uh, Me personally, I'm from Topeka, and... My peers that I grew up with, my class was 210. I can tell you after that first year of graduating, I've seen so many of my friends go down the path that, you know, wasn't good. You know, many of them went to jail. Many of them had actually been murdered or died. And it breaks my heart. So the reason why I have so much support from my Topeka community, specifically the African community within Topeka, is because they're looking up to me and they're trying to make sure like, Deandre, you have to complete this because we're relying on your success. And yeah, it's a lot of pressure on me, but I'd rather be the one to bear all that pressure and make it through just so that way I can clear a path for them to walk down as well. And plus, when I get to, you know, whatever level I can be where I'm in a good position, I can actually reach back and start helping them up as well because I already know the routes to go, I already know the people to talk to, and I can direct them in the right direction.
3: You know, this, this kind of connects to something I, I had written down as a note that I definitely wanted to touch on. And, and this is getting into some of the probably even more controversial aspects of this conversation. But, you know, I think growing up for me, I was I was told my whole life, you know, God loves you. God loves everyone the same. You treat everyone the way you want to be treated, regardless of anything. You need to be colorblind. And I think that what's kind of somewhat gotten to be an interesting conversation piece is this notion of colorblindness. And, and that maybe, you know, and, and here is someone who wants to raise two kids that are white into being just good humans that happen to be white, you know, saying you never should see color. Is that the right way that we should be teaching our kids or should we be pivoting on that?
0: Um, I kind of have a, a different perspective on this, uh, which might be different from misty teachers. We're not sure yet. We're going to find out, but <laughs> because I have a military background, um, on one side, I, I very much understand the color blindness, um, uh, story because in the military, you know, it doesn't matter what color you are. We're all fighting, uh, for America. We're all doing, you know, our job, but on the other side, I just think race is so important because race is, it's culture. It's a background, and I'm very proud of my culture. Although I'm not from Africa, the country, I mean, the, yeah, that. Although I'm not from Africa, um, <laughs> I still have to be proud of, you know, my descendants. I have to be proud of the things that they have gone through to get me to where I am today. And with white people, you know, I just hate the fact that we, we use the term white now. Because it's like, you, y'all have a, a descendants as well. Many people don't even look uh, far into their heritage. You know, a white person could be Irish, Greek, et cetera. But because we use this term white, it just blurs all of that. And a lot of people want to just use the term, well, since we're all born in America, why can't we be just Americans? But America is a a pot full of different things mixed in, different cultures. And uh, to say what is the American culture, I mean, it's hard to actually picture that. It's hard to generalize that. The American culture is that pot itself that unites all the different cultures together, and we embrace one another. So I just think race is so important to where we can't just be colorblind. You have to acknowledge the race and embrace it.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I would agree. Um I think at one time in America, we did say we're colorblind. We don't see color. But But now the lines have just blurred so much where we have to see it. We have to see it, we have to recognize it for what it is. Um, Because if if we didn't have to see it, half of the things that were happening in America would not be happening. And so Sean, I would say to you, as you are raising your children, um, they should be cognizant of that. And they should understand, you know, my daughter is a seventh grader, going to be seventh grade this year. And I remember she had a presentation at her school in fourth grade where the officer came in and talked to the kids about dare, about drugs. And a little white boy in her class said, it's the black people, they bring the drugs here. My daughter's the only African-American in her class. And I think the officer was shocked and I think her white teacher was shocked. But I was so grateful that the officer said, no, that's not true. And that's not how it works. Everyone has a part in bringing drugs to America. And in fact, black people are not the ones bringing drugs here. They don't have the means or resources to fly the drugs here. They're the low man on the totem pole. He didn't go into it all in depth. But the thing that also made me happy was that he reached out to the young boy's parents and said, we know that children say what they hear at home and that that conversation was not appropriate. The fact that he's in fourth grade, of course, there will be no type of suspension, but we would ask that you educate your child a little bit better at home and have him not blurt that out. The family did have um, the little boy write a letter of apology to Lorraine that he read in front of the whole class because if he can blurt that out in front of the whole class, then he could read the apology in front of the whole class. So I was very happy about that. And I did receive a call as soon as it happened. So we definitely have to help our children understand that color is definitely out there, that prejudices start super young. We don't like to think that, but they really do. And if you're not introducing your children to people of different ethnicities, um, different backgrounds, then the first time they see someone who looks different they're naturally scared of that person. And that's unfair too.
2: Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the officer, I kind of want to segue into the relationship between, um, the black community, but really society overall at this point and the police, it's been a huge topic. I know there's been a lot of anti-police rhetoric and calls for defunding the police and, um, but how do you how do you think about the balance between needing systematic dramatic change in the police and how they behave, but also this acceptance or, or I, I guess this acknowledgement that at some level we need some type of police force in the country. Uh, where do you find that balance? How do you think it should go from
0: here well I, and throughout the event i've maintained communication with the police force mainly because. You know, I don't want to push this narrative that we just hate police officers. Oh, batteries there we go. Can you still see me? Yeah, yep. Yep, there you
1: okay.
0: go. I don't want to push this notion that we just hate police officers. I don't want to push this notion that we want police officers to just all die and disappear. But you got to understand we're angry because over generations we've seen nothing but our men and women being killed by them. So like I said on the news, we we gain that instinctual fear of the police forces. And I just, me personally, I just wanna mend that relationship, but it comes with changing how they work their system. There's some type of loophole in either the hiring process of the potential police candidates or the evaluation of police officers when they're working that allow these people who are racist to get inside. And we gotta look at that system And patch that loophole, fix it. Because if they truly want to, you know, amend this relationship, we have to stop these racist people from getting in and causing more police brutality incidents. We have to figure out ways to evaluate our current police officers uh, every step of the way and make sure that they're mentally okay. Mental health is important. You know, maybe they weren't racist when they started, but along the way, they experienced something that cause a, a change in their opinion. So once again, it's not just individual people, it's a system that we have to look at and fix.
1: Right. I think, I think for me, um, Brett and I agree. I am not about, um, you know, I'm, I'm not on a fan of defunding, but what I am a fan of is educating. You and I, and all of us know that for the most part, you just need a high school diploma or a GED. You need to pass a physical to be a police officer. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we, all of those of us who work in higher ed, um, value a higher education. Let's talk about why we ask students to take general education requirements because we want them to be well-rounded individuals. That's what we sell, right? And so if you want people to be well-rounded individuals, why do we not want that for our police officers? Why do we feel like someone who's carrying a gun that can kill us only needs a high school diploma? So let's talk about that. You know, I, I had a, 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 I've had a great conversations with Stu Height, our Pitt State Chief of Police. One of the things he talked about is, you know, with any career, a lot of times there are additional certifications that come And one of them is a racial bias training that officers have to participate in each year. Now, this is what I wanna say about that training. We all just participated in COVID-19 virtual learning from March to May. Our students did. We know that there are faculty members that students would um, get into Zoom and maybe they would um, hide their face and they're just listening to the lecture or maybe they're not. But for attendance purposes, their name shows up on the screen. A lot of those bias trainings are done via conference calls, are done um, via videos. Who knows if you start a video, you mute your camera, are you really listening? Are you really engaging? Are you really participating? Or did you check a box? So I would submit to you that especially when you're dealing with the lives of so many people, that we have to find a system where they can actually go and sit in a room and participate in real life training with people across from each other who talk about these issues and give them actual scenarios and how will you deal with those. You can learn a lot by watching people's eyes. You can learn a lot by watching people's, people's facial expressions on how they're going to deal with you. And I would say this, doing that certification through video should never happen anymore for any police department, anywhere, Pittsburgh, um, Minnesota, wherever. There are some things, now, you know, maybe there are things, I don't, listen, policing is not my business, all right? Diversity is my business. Whatever training you need to be a police officer, I don't think those trainings should be done through any type of video conferencing. I think people need to be in the room. And education becomes key. Now, I know that there's also a shortage of officers. Yesterday on the way to Pittsburgh, my husband was telling me a story that when he was a high school senior, my husband's from Birmingham, Alabama, that the Atlanta Police Department came to his high school, just like we do at admission counselors, set up a table and said, who wants to be a policeman? You can be one when you graduate high school because they had a shortage. He had several family members who participated in that program. But what I submit to you, even an associate's degree would be better than nothing. And that's what we have to push for, not defunding, but educating officers. So they actually know how to deal with people.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, there was something, um, I th- I, you know, I, I think that is so right on the psychological evaluation side of this too. Um, you know, I, now, now I've, I'm trying to be careful that I don't offend the police, but I also <laughs> would say, you know, Uh, I think that there, if you can have a badge and a gun and power, you also might be attracting a certain kind of person who wants to have power over people, regardless of the race issue aside. But then that adds into it. One of the things, and I read was an article that or an op-ed that I read um, after George Floyd's death, and and then and I and I'll be honest, I had I I had a really hard time. I didn't want to watch that video for a long time. I I knew enough to know I didn't want to see it but this guy said in in this article he said what you w- look at that police officer's face
1: right look and at his hands was, in his pocket
3: his yes and you look at his face and you look at his stance this was this was about brutal power this was about it was like a child crushing uh bugs this is what and i and i watched it and i noticed that it was he enjoyed you could tell this person was enjoying having this amount of power over someone where they get to the control they're alive or dead and i swear every time george floyd said i can't breathe i saw that guy rock forward harder with his with his knee harder into his throat and that to me that's a sociopath that is a he racist and sociopath this is someone who is enjoying the infliction of pain on another human being right. um And and that is something that it seems insane to me that, and he had been an officer for quite a while. So he didn't just become a sociopath that day. Right. You shouldn't be able to get through with 16 violations. And I think he had killed one other person already and and all these sorts of things. Um, and I'm not a policing expert either, but what I will say is that if you're a sociopath, you probably shouldn't be given a gun and a badge. So one area that I do have some expertise is in the political side of things. Uh, And that's that's a lot of my background um, is that you mentioned about this silent racism, almost this this quiet racism, the the hidden racism, the CEOs who now are just getting found out of this. Right. I've had this theory. You guys tell me if you feel like I'm on to something here or not, which is that racism wasn't created in 2016. It was where it had been for a long time, which was under a rock or under rocks. And for political purposes, there are individuals who decided to win. They were willing to turn over those rocks and tell those people, "Hey, you don't have to hide anymore."
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Be open. Mm-hmm. Do you think that do you do you feel as a black American that you've seen that actually occur?
0: Well, I can't um say specifics because of my military obligation, but um I will say that um if you know that your base is comprised of people, a lot of people who are racist or within the KKK, why is it so difficult for you to denounce that, those people, those group of people within your base? Why is it so difficult for you to um, say that they are not a part of me or, you know, et cetera? But if you know that your base actually allowed you to win a certain election and your base, you know, is fueling your progression and whatever, I mean, it's beneficial to you. So why not appeal to that crowd? You know, and I think that that's very disheartening. That's very sickening. But at this point, you know, racist people feel empowered. They feel the need to creep their heads out of the rock that, you know, we put over, I guess you could say, racism. But once again, we can also take some ownership within that because we shouldn't have put a rock over it. We should have ended it where it was at. But, you know, it just takes, I, I don't, I'm not actually sure what it's going to take to end racism if it is ever going to end. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would agree. Um, you know, one of the things my husband always says to people this, if the head is sick, the body is sick. And we're in a predicament right now where the head is sick. And because of that, people feel the liberty to say and do whatever they want and know that the consequences will be very minimal. And that is very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate that we live in a time um, where that has happened. I'm sure you all have have followed the news now um, that Roger Goodell has come out um, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, My husband is an avid sports fan. He told me that means nothing right now until the owners of the NFL say something because the players report to the owners, not to Roger Goodell. So he can say it all he wants to, but if the owners don't denounce it, then nothing's gonna change. Nothing's gonna change. And so what happens, Sean and Brett, as I said yesterday, this is why we need white allies. This is why we need advocates on the ground for us because once again, their wealth and their power their voices will will always be louder than someone who's marginalized and if they don't stand up for us we don't have a, we don't we don't have a chance
3: well and that that's that actually gets us into one of the last areas I definitely want to make sure we explore and that's this concept of white privilege um, that you know I know there's a lot of white people who get already get their hackles up when someone says white privilege right they they Mm -hmm. immediately want to get defensive um one thing before we say that i would say is that there's also a certain thing here whereas particularly as and i'll say this as someone who is a christian where you just need to say what's right and what's wrong Mm -hmm. and you don't equivocate things and there's a time where politics aside it's not about teams you don't say there are good people on both sides of this argument there are not good people on one side of this argument period Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, we need to be able to say that. So I wanted to say that. Uh, I guess it's really important to me and something that I talk a lot to our kids about is that let's not equivocate these things. Um, and so, um, and if we had leadership that would consistently say that, mm-hmm. then we might be in a better situation in this country. And I'm hoping that uh, you're seeing that with all the former presidents, uh, Georgia, regardless of party, every one of them saying pretty consistent thing, which is, there isn't two sides of this. This is just wrong, period. Um, but so white privilege. So this concept of white privilege, when I ask you, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? What does the notion of white privilege mean?
1: Well, you know, for me, it's, it's kind of like yesterday, one of the reporters asked me, why am I different from you? You know, and I said, well, first of all, you're a white man and white men in America equal authority. Um, That authority allows you the opportunity to, once again, navigate spaces that I would not even dream of going into. So white privilege means that, you you know, the statement, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Have you heard that statement? Yes. So those things have already been created for you, for your children. They just ease right into those opportunities. And so having that opportunity already handed to you, you didn't work for it. It was just given to you. That is a privilege for you. Nothing is handed most of the time to African-Americans. Now there is there are a small group of African-Americans that have um, in quotes made it that can give that type of life to their children. But for the most, White privilege represents a, a realm of, of opportunity and success that other people only dream they could navigate, that they could have that opportunity. Um, example, let's say you, you are friends with someone um, who's the CEO of a company. Hey, you know, hey, you know, I'll use myself. Hey, you know, my daughter, Cortland, you know, she just graduated from Pittsburgh state. You got room for her in your company? Yeah, send her on over. I'll set her up in the management trainee program. Oh, does she need to send a resume? Oh no, she doesn't need to send a resume. Come on, you know, we're friends. And automatically Cortland has a job at your company. Cortland's starting in the manager training program and now working her way up. She didn't earn that. Well, she earned the degree, but she didn't go submit a resume. She didn't go through an interview, but my dad knows the owner of that company made a phone call and now I have a job. That's white privilege. And it happens over and over and over and over and over again.
0: Um, my version of white, different, uh, white privilege is a little bit different. Um, and I mentioned this in my speech, but it's like the idea of For most white people, they don't have to think about race constantly. They don't have to think about the interaction with police officers or going into, you know, white neighborhoods just for a jog and being afraid of, you know, somebody calling the neighborhood association or police on you because they think that you're going to rob somebody. They don't have to always think about things like that. Whereas me, as a black man, those are things that I think about not just in February during Black History Month, but... 12 months out of the year, all the time. And the privilege is, you know, even during our peace rally, yeah, we had a large portion of the community there, but the people who exerted their white privilege were the people who were still driving uh, in the streets, ignoring the fact that another human, I guess if you wanna generalize it, another human was killed due to police brutality. And he just so happened to be black. You know, versus me, I don't have the privilege of ignoring those issues. I don't have the privilege of, you know, not letting it get to me personally. I don't have the privilege of doing that because it is personalized because I could very much see myself being in that situation. The privilege comes from, like Ms. Dietrich said, being able to get in those higher rooms because of your skin color. And, you know, we can say that that doesn't happen, but we would just be lying to ourselves, lying to ourselves. Those situations happen all the time. I've seen it for myself. And you know, black people are just at a disadvantage and we're trying to get out of that. Not saying all black people fit that stereotypical uh, story, but a majority of us do.
3: How do we How do we fix it? And how can Brett and I sitting here today speaking on behalf of those people who want to be white allies, who want well, to do whatever we can to be impactful? how can we help and how can we fix this?
1: Sometimes you have to be willing to step out, Sean. And what I mean by that is you're a leader on our campus. You're somebody who has power on our campus. Um, you have the ability to hire people. You have the ability to fire people. You have the ability to look through um, resumes and sometimes it's already, listen, I'm, this is not my first rodeo. I know how these things work. Sometimes there's already somebody prepped and groomed that's going to move up. But is that really fair? Have you really given other people an opportunity to, to have that bigger stage? And so as an ally, I would ask you to speak up. You sit in a position of authority. And I said, even with work-study students who apply for jobs at Block 22, maybe a friend of a friend of a friend has said, hey, Sean, my kid's come in the pit. They're going to need a work-study job. Can you help them? Maybe you actually look through all the applications and you find somebody who actually has an interest in the work that you're doing at Block 22. And that one work study job creates an opportunity for them that helps them in their life as they move on from Pitt State. And so as you think about hiring people, as you think about the interactions that you have with students, make them meaningful interactions. Don't just check a box for a box sake, but actually get to know people and say, hey, You're actually interested in the work I do in government relations, or you're interested in maker space. Tell me more about that interest and what that looks like for you. And those are the people that you want to surround yourself with because students are looking for mentors. Students are looking for people who they can emulate the same way they did in high school. And you and Brett both sit in positions where you can help a lot of students of color realize their dream and realize that they've got a shot in making it to the next level.
0: Um, I would definitely say, and I'll start by giving you this story that I actually had to experience uh, being here in Pittsburgh. So, you know, it's my freshman year here in Pittsburgh and, you know, my hair is different because I'm African-American. It's curly, it's hard to cut, et cetera. So um, time came, I like to stay groomed. I needed a haircut. And I literally did this because a lot of people don't have experience cutting my type of hair. I mean, it's something that you got to acknowledge. So I called every single barber shop within Pittsburgh, every single one of them, got on Google, looked and called. And I just wanted to have an honest conversation. So I talked to the people who answered the, the phone and I said, do you have experience cutting African-American hair? And each and every one of them had told me no. Now, that doesn't make them racist by any count. I can't assume that they're racist because they've never, they probably never experienced an African-American coming into their shop. However, the thing that I want people to do if they don't want to be perceived as that is to educate yourself and go beyond just being comfortable staying in your lane. There's many things out there for the barber example. They could have you know used a makeshift doll. With mannequin. Fabric, a mannequin and practice cutting my type of hair. There's many of them out there, but we get so comfortable staying in our lane and staying with the people who look like us or around us. And the real truth of the matter is you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. You have to be comfortable going outside of your realm and studying something that's not typical of yourself. So if you truly want to be an ally, I need you to educate yourself on as much as possible. I need you to educate yourself on different races. You don't have to understand our language, but you do have to understand our culture just a little bit. Acknowledge our culture or the very basics of what makes us African-American. It's not enough just to ask your favorite African-American these type of questions. You have to do your own research and practice it. So that's what I would uh, tell tell to the people who would like to be allies for our community.
2: Um, guys, I know we, we've kept you longer than we usually do, but this is a great conversation. and I really appreciate your time. Uh, I, I do want to ask one more thing. I feel like, and, and you've seen so many people say this, that this movement that's happening right now is maybe unprecedented. I mean, it's been a, there's been a lot of movements in the past and a lot of efforts in the past to make legit change. And it does feel like this moment is different. Like this one might actually lead to some real dramatic, substantial change. And I, I'm wondering, I guess, two things. Um, and Dietrich, you can go first. One, do you feel that way? Do you feel like this time is different? And two, where do we go from this moment? After the protests, where do we go to actually make sure this sticks?
1: I do feel like it's different. And I said this yesterday, and I'll say it again. The reason it's different this time is I think white people are sick and tired of being sick and tired now. I think um, the same way Sean said that it bothered him to watch that police officer bend his knee in George Floyd's neck. I think this incident, people witnessed death. I think before the other ones were a shooting here or a shooting there, we didn't see it actually happen, but we all witnessed George Floyd take his last breath. And I don't care who you are, if you have any ounce of decency especially white women who are mothers. Every person I've talked to that's been a mom has said, when he cried out for his mother, we felt that as women, as mothers. And then later to find out that his mother was deceased and that he was crying out for his mother in heaven, oh man, that was gut-wrenching. And so I think this movement is different because we all witnessed that. Where do we go from here? Education. We have to educate each other. Just like this conversation we're having, man, this is awesome. And I am, I am beyond grateful that you and Sean have taken this time to talk to us um, because I truly believe that you are both being very sincere and that you truly want to know and learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we need. And education is the key. How do we do that? Um, And I talked to Dr. Scott about this cultural sensitivity training for our faculty, for our staff, for our administrators, because sometimes, you know, my mother used to say this, you don't know what you don't know. And so we have to start learning from each other. Hey, you know, is it okay if I call you this? Is it okay if we talk about this? Help me understand what you're feeling, those are ways that you open up the lines of communication. You know, Um, I'm going to give a short story and I know we're over time, but I want to give you this short story. Um, We had an African-American male on our campus. Um, You know, he was a young man. He was probably DeAndre, what are you, 22? DeAndre, 23? 21. 21? Um, But he was the the man of the house growing up in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, He came to Pittsburgh State University I'll admit he was a little rough around the edges. You know, I had to give him a little extra mama love. He was sitting in class one day. Um, the faculty member said in the syllabus, plain as day, no cell phones in this class. He was sitting in class. He had already been warned a couple times, hey, don't put, pull your cell phone out in my class. On this day, because sometimes we bring the cares of life with us, Um, You know, we could have, our kids could have made us late for work. They, you know, kids act funny and things happen. And so there was an extra level of frustration this day by this faculty member, and he pulled his phone out. The faculty member came to him and got in his face and said, I told you no cell phones with the finger in the face. Snatched the phone from him. The student was literally, and this is in front of the whole class, the student was literally shaking the student ran to my office and i tell you i knew that he ran because he was sweaty he was shaking he was pissed and i said what's going on sit down because we know to deescalate we need people to sit down and so i said sit down he told me what happened he said miss rose he said i wanted to hurt her i wanted to hurt her His fists were balled up as he was talking to me. He was very emotional. And I said, well, thank God you didn't. Tell me what happened. So I contacted the faculty member and said, I want to meet with you. I want to explain something to you. I said, as an African-American man, there are only two people who can put their finger in an African-American man's face and get away with it. His mother and his grandma nobody else because the black mother is, is is reverenced as a very high person in the African-American community and a grandmother as well. The student, the faculty member gave, gave the phone back. The agreement for the rest of the semester was this, you have a case of can't help it. That's what I call it. I need you to bring your cell phone to my office. You can turn it face down, turn your ringer off I won't look at your phone, and I need you to go to class and get through the rest of the semester because this was a class the student needed to graduate. The student was scared to go back to class because the faculty member knew that we, you know, we had this conversation. He knew I'd met with the faculty member, and the faculty member was like, "There will be no retribution. I understand, um, you know." And not only that, but let me tell you, Sean and Brett, what this faculty member did that is commendable. Myself and the student and the faculty member, the three of us met, the faculty member looked across the table at him and said, I wanna apologize to you. I did not know about the culture of the African-American man. You caught me on a day when I was very stressed, I was very frustrated, and I really had no right to put my finger in your face and I wanna know if you'll accept my apology today. The African-American student literally began to cry. That's how serious this was. And he said, apology accepted. That student has since graduated and is working for a fine company in Kansas City. And literally to this day, I still talk to him. He's married now and has three children. That is what has to happen. Here's what happens sometimes. Well, I'm Dr. So-and-so, so so you're gonna give me my respect. But guess what? After you remove the doctor from your name, you're a person just like me. You're a person just like that student. And for that faculty member to reach across that table and extend their hand and say, would you accept my apology? Meant everything to that young man, everything to him. And I truly believe that one day as he continues to excel in his company, him and I've had conversations. He's like, "Miss Dietra, I really want to give a scholarship at, to Pitt State. He said, right now, I'm just getting started, I'm married, I'm young, we've got three kids, but I want to give back. I believe that that incident right there was the turning point in his his love for our institution and him knowing that people are people. And because of that interaction, it changed who he was as a person that day. And for the rest of the semester, like clockwork on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, he came to my office, whether I was there or not, left his cell phone on my windowsill, went to class, came back and picked it up. I just wanted to give you that example to show you. If you're asking, where do we go from here? Conversations like that, real conversations of people just not using their clout or their um, who they are as a person um, to put leverage over someone, but just being a real human being. Like you said, you're raising your kids to be real human beings that care and have compassion for one another. And that was a big moment.
2: Yeah, man, that's such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, DeAndre, why don't you close up? Why you, you're a young black man in America. This is a really stressful, but powerful time for this country. Where, where oh, do you see man. it going from here? And, and um, how do we get to where we need to be?
0: Well, first of all, I mean, many people can say this, but I've never in my lifetime. Once again, I'm, I, I admit, I was complacent as well, I was comfortable because I seen my first black family in the, in the White House and I thought everything was gonna be fine and dandy after that, but um, I never thought that I would have to be out in the streets protesting like that. But honestly, uh, seeing, having the peace rally and going through that experience, it gave me a lot of hope and, and it let me know, reassured me that the future is bright And I don't care what anyone says. I'm a true optimist, and I know this uh, deep in my heart, that the future is going to work out. It just takes time. Um, Like Ms. Dietrich said, though, we need to continue to have these conversations. It can't just be during Black History Month is when we have these conversations. Or, you know, every time a, a George Floyd incident happens, we can't just have these conversations. It's easy to do things in the moment when you're motivated. But if you truly want change, you have to do the Uh, things that you want whenever you're not motivated, whenever you're not really thinking about it, whenever you don't really want to talk about the conversation, that's when you need to have it. That's when you're actually going to change who you are and get it out to your audience more often. Um, But I I talked to the police chief in Pittsburgh, NPSU, and told him that we also need to reestablish our relationships. Um, In planning the Peace Rally together, we realized something, the biggest issue that we had in planning the peace rally was that our communication was terrible. Um, we either didn't know how to communicate in words effectively and in detail, or we just didn't communicate at all. So the day of the peace rally, there were certain loophole, uh, certain things that we were missing. And then we acknowledged that. And I forgot to tell you this. I'm sorry about that. And I was like, well, thank you, uh, Chief. I actually forgot to tell you this, X, Y, and Z, and so forth. But right there, we're already established our relationship and we acknowledge the issue. We need to communicate more because I know how to talk to you. If I talk to you more, you know how to talk to me and we can lessen those uh, things that we've missed within our community. If you want to make decisions on behalf of the African-American community, you have to talk to us about those and actually get our inputs on those decisions. And, you know, et cetera. So truthfully... We just need to continue building our relationships and strengthening our communication. That's it.
3: Thank you both um, for spending this time with us. And um, I know it was impactful for me. I hope that those that listen to this, it's impactful for them too. And um, you know, my prayer is that um, maybe we can finally, we can finally realize the change that has needed to happen for what, 500 years. <laughs>
1: Probably,
3: so, yeah. um, maybe we can finally get there. Maybe that change will finally come.
1: Awesome.
3: Guys, thank you so much. Let's keep having these conversations.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. I really yeah. appreciate it. For real.
2: Thanks, Thanks for taking the time, guys.
1: I'll Bye. see y'all around. All
2: right. All right. See, see, ya. Ya. see ya. See ya.